Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. Today's episode is about hope. And we spoke with three scientists who've written this remarkable paper in JAMA titled Holding Hope for Patients with Serious Illness. I mean, hope is, um, I mean, it's a central part of every cancer patient's journey, every caregiver's journey. I mean, it's a central part of our mission at ACS. We have hope lodges around the country where we offer free places to stay to patients and caregivers. You know, when their best hope for treatment is in another city than where they live. But in this paper, these three scientists, Dr. Abby Rosenberg, Dr. Bob Arnold, Dr. Yale Schenker, they explored this, this tension that can exist you know, when a patient has a very serious diagnosis, sometimes, you know, the clinicians, they appreciate that, you know, hope is important. Of course, there's potential therapeutic benefit of hope. And um, on the other hand, sometimes they struggle with what they perceive to be like perceived unrealistic hopes. And how do you, how do you, how do you navigate that? Well, this paper and in this conversation you're about to hear, um, these three remarkable palliative care physicians have some really nice advice, really good insights based on their, you know, long experience taking care of seriously ill patients and their families and their extensive uh, research in this space. So let me give you a quick introduction of these three guests, and then we'll get into the conversation. So Dr. Abby Rosenberg is a pediatric oncologist and palliative care physician and researcher at the University of Washington where she directs the pediatrics component of the Cambia Palliative Care Center and Seattle Children's Research Institute, where she directs the Palliative Care and Resilience Lab. She has an American Cancer Society Research Scholar Grant to study resilience outcomes among adolescents and young adults with advanced cancer. Dr. Bob Arnold is a palliative care physician, distinguished professor of medicine, and chief of the palliative care section at the University of Pittsburgh. He previously served as a member of the American Cancer Society's Palliative Care Peer Review Committee. And Dr. Yale Schenker is a palliative care physician, professor of medicine, and director of the Palliative Research Center at the University of Pittsburgh. She is a past recipient of American Cancer Society research funding, which supported her study of primary palliative care for patients with advanced hematologic malignancies. And with that, let's get into this conversation. And remember, y'all, carry hope with you. You know, spread it to as many people as you can. Be good. Enjoy the holiday season. Love you guys. Well, thanks for joining me. I've got Dr. Yale Schenker, Dr. Bob Arnold, and Dr. Abby Rosenberg here. Thanks for joining the Theory Lab podcast, y'all. Thanks for having, thanks for having us. You've written a beautiful viewpoint uh, published in JAMA in, in early October, and it's about the struggle that clinicians have with hope and with how, how patients with serious illness experience hope. So why don't we start here? Um, Abby, could you tell me a little bit about First, let's start with the therapeutic benefit of hope and, and how it's helpful to patients and caregivers. Um, and then we can kind of we can kind of take the other side of that. Sure. Um, first of all, thanks again for having us. And I want to thank Bob and Neil for working on this piece with me together. It was a really fun exercise and thought-provoking activity for us to think about the question you just asked, Joe. You know, I think about hope when you think about any human adversity throughout all of our history, there is this component that we go through in the setting of an uncertainty where we psychologically 
have an idea in our minds about where we want to end up and how we want a particular circumstance to go. And that is particularly true in the context of serious illness where folks can feel really a lack of power and a sense of of that hope, of what they're hoping, what they want the outcome to be. And so to me, the real therapeutic benefit of it, as you say, is that people continue to need something to look forward to. They need some positive psychological anchor to get through tough times. And hope represents that thought process and that forward type of thinking that people need to carry them through. So I guess on the other hand, and you all you all are MDs, you all are palliative care physicians. You 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 deal with patients with serious illness. And you write about how clinicians sometimes have to think about whether they need to correct their patient's hopes um, to enable informed decision-making. Or I guess, could you expand on that, Bob, and, and talk about why clinicians sometimes feel the need to correct a patient's hope? I think one of the things that uh, goes with being an expert is wanting to help others know your expertise. And if people say things that you think aren't correct, we all have a tendency to say, no, no, that's not right. And so I think from a factual matter, we believe that we are better at prognosticating than patients or families. And so, you know, we want to be right. I also think we worry tremendously about people making bad decisions because they're too hopeful. And so we tie ourselves up in knots to correct people and give them information even if they don't want it um, or it's not helpful. I think some of the other thing for a lot of clinicians is they conflate hope and cure as these same things. And they really worry about not only people making what they think are the wrong decisions, but they worry about the downstream impact that it will have on the clinician's own ability to care for a patient. So there's this sense of, I need you to know how serious this is so that we don't have to have harder conversations in the future. And that, to me, is where the tension arises because clinicians sometimes can see this in this black and white cure equals hope. Other, all other things are not equated with hope. And, and I don't think that's how people think or experience adversity and serious illness or uncertainty. It turns out to be you get stuck in what I'll call the Goldilocks problem. That is, if you're too hopeful, I need to correct you so you don't hope so much. On the other hand, if I'm a doctor, I also worry tremendously if the patient or family isn't hopeful enough because then they'll be depressed. And so we often think that the right degree of hope is exactly the way that I think it'll play out. And it just is the case that people vary all over the board about how they think about what the future will bring and as Abby points out, what they're hoping for. I think it's really interesting when you think about how we give prognostic information and, and sort of the odds statements that we give, that there's a 95% uh, 
five-year mortality, for example. And so it's very natural. Those odd statements invite hope to be in the 5% that's going to live longer. And so it shouldn't come as any surprise to us um, because medicine, and particularly serious illness, is so filled with uncertainty. Um, I, I think, again, we confuse the understanding and the hope and, and don't recognize that people can both understand the data and can be hopeful. Um, and in fact, the way we present the data and, and the uncertainty involves invites that hopefulness. Yeah, I think, Abby, you were the one that used the word tension. And I love this piece that you wrote. It takes a more nuanced approach to this concept of hope. And, and Yale, could you kind of elaborate on that? Can you talk about how you think that we can address this tension or dilemma that, that clinicians have when treating patients with a poor prognosis and kind of think about hope in a different way? So I think any time that we start to talk about patients having quote-unquote unrealistic expectations or uh, quote-unquote false hope, we need to pause, we need to step back, and we need to ask, you know, what do they understand? What do they want to understand? And recognize that for many patients, what we call false hope may actually be what allows them to go on with a poor prognosis, what brings them energy, what helps them cope, what gives them, like Abby was talking about, a sense of control, um, a sense of purpose. And so it's interesting, you know, in, in palliative care, we're often consulted because someone, quote unquote, doesn't get how sick they are, right? Um, or they're hoping for a miracle. And when we go and see those patients, often we ask, what have the doctors told you? And they're able to say very clearly, the doctors told me I have a really poor prognosis um, and I need to be hopeful or, and I, I believe something different. I'm hoping for a miracle. Um, and so I think it's recognizing that that understanding and hope can exist side by side and and um, and being okay with that with that tension. I think what isn't helpful is to go and give a bunch more information uh, so people understand um, because it isn't an information kind of a, a problem. You wrote about how the role of clinicians, and I'm quoting you here, is not to prioritize a single likely or unlikely hope rather it's to help their patients recognize and diversify the breadth of their hopes. And you'll give some really good examples. I wonder, um, Abby, is that something you could elaborate on? Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that we do often in palliative care, and it's so important because you know, usually when you have a conversation with a patient, and let's say we're talking about somebody with advanced cancer, and you say, well, what are you hoping for? And they say, I'm hoping for a miracle, I'm hoping for a cure. And if you stop the conversation there, especially in your mind, if you think that miracle or cure is unlikely, you as the clinician won't understand some other things that you can work on with the family to align their care. And the patient and the family might not be able to articulate the other things that are important to them. So one of the things we wrote in this piece was to say, you know, what are you hoping for? Well, I'm hoping for a miracle. And then after that, you say, what else? And maybe they say, I'm hoping for more time with my family. What else? I'm hoping to see my grandkids' graduation. What else? I'm hoping that I don't have pain. What else? I'm hoping, and, and 
the reality of hope is that people have myriad hopes if you just give them the, the window of opportunity to explore them. And so our role as clinicians is to gather all of that information because it's so important for us to then move forward with the family. And in the future, when we get to that point where we, hey, you know what, we're not going to get that hope of curing you. And we can achieve these other things for you. So which of these things should we work on today? And I think there's, you know, a flexibility in that. There's also a sadness. And I think this may be another reason, getting back to one of your earlier questions, that, that um, you know, clinicians can be afraid of hope because there's a sadness when you, when you have to shift hopes or when a particular hope isn't realized and sitting with that um helping patients and families to sit with that um recognizing that there are ups and downs um in serious illness and that hope you know shifts along with that um is a lot of what we were trying to get at here so i wonder i guess as a question for all of you how did you become interested in this i know you're an md you deal with this every day but was there a particular patient that inspired you or how did you come to think like this is a this is something that we really need to explore and um, open this conversation up in a, in a in a wider way bob i'll start with you you know i think for me that one is that i've worked with really great other clinicians you know a lot of this resonates tony bach talks about he's a clinician at the university of washington tony bach uh, yeah, and as an adult oncologist, and he talks about diversifying hope portfolios as a way to just, it's a great phrase to think about getting as many hopes as you can. I also think that if, as a physician, if you read the literature in psychology, there's this big literature about false hope and its protective effects. And there's anthropologists who have written really brilliantly about this. Sharon Kaufman comes to mind. And to a certain extent, then it's having these experiences where what you do doesn't work. And it's like, oh, that didn't help. And then sort of getting um, resources from outside of medicine that have, that for me at least helped me think of, oh, is there a better way to do this? So for me, it's 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 funny. I, I actually went right to a particular patient who was one of my first as a pediatric oncologist. Her name was Ashley, and um, she was a teenage woman with refractory leukemia. And as her cancer progressed and it became very clear that we were not going to be able to cure it, she and her dad and I had a conversation once. And her dad said, you know, one of the other people came in here and said they didn't want to take away my hope and they weren't really willing to tell me the truth and I need to know the truth about how serious this is. So I continued the conversation and we talked about her prognosis. And then I said, can we go back to that, to your comment about, the, about hope, say more about what your experience was? And he just laughed and he said, it's ridiculous to me that you people think you can take away my hope. And he went on to say, you don't have that much power. You can come in here and tell me that she might not survive her cancer, but I'm still going to hope that you're wrong. And we started to have these additional conversations, as I was saying before, about what else Ashley and her dad and the rest of her family were hoping for. And I think about them all the time now, because what they taught me is that 
we really don't have the capacity to single-handedly remove somebody's hope for some alternative future. And our job as clinicians is really to understand families and to put the time in to think about what they would love to see in some future fantasy world, what they think they will actually achieve in their reality, and how we can try to integrate those things together so that we continue to give them that psychological um, anchor of some possible future that might bring them joy. And it happens all the time. I'm I'm a doctor this week, and I'm seeing a man with esophageal cancer who is clearly has a very short life expectancy. And if you ask him and his wife what he hopes for, he hopes he's going to be cured. He's very religious. They say that they're going to go home and be cured. And you could spend all day, every day, telling them why the dialysis and the surgeries and the yada, yada, yadas aren't helping him and are just prolonging his misery. Or you can spend your time figuring out what he really wants or what he wants as well is to go home and sit on his front porch. And we can work on that. And I hope that when he gets home on his front porch, he gets that miracle. And yet if he doesn't, I'll have at least gotten him that. Yeah, I want to ask you if um, if you were talking to a, a young person in medical school who wants to treat patients and someday they're going to be having a conversation with somebody with poor prognosis. Is there, what would you say to them? What kind of advice would you offer them? I would say that being with patients and families during serious illness, during some of the most uncertain, most stressful times in their lives is one of the greatest privileges of being a physician um, and to remember that and to hold on to that. Um, I would say to talk less and listen more. Um, uh, I would remind people that the experience of serious illness is as varied as the people who have serious illness not to assume that you have all the answers. And I would say to ask two questions, which Bob taught me to ask. One is, what's your sense of how things are going? And two is, how are you coping? Um, and then remember that you don't always have to fix things, that listening is, is therapeutic. I guess the last thing I wanted to ask is, you know, we've talked a lot about patients and clinicians. What about caregivers? Abby, if, if um, if you're somebody who's just become a caregiver for somebody with a terminal illness, I mean, it's not an easy role. Hope is going to be a big part of their their life. And I guess, well, what kind of advice would you have for them? Yeah, Joe, that is a hard question. I think what's been really interesting to me about this piece is the number of caregivers and patients who have reached out to us and said, yes, that's right. Thank you for writing this. And so I think what I would tell a caregiver who was just entering into this really hard stretch, I would say they're not alone and that they are going to have a whole lot of ups and downs and hopes and worries. And that our job as the clinicians is to walk beside them and to listen and to help them explore all of the positive and negative emotions that they might be experiencing, all of which are valid. 
and that we want to know about their hopes. We want to know about those worries. We want to do all of that work with them so that they know, again, that they're not in this alone. I guess the other thing that I would add is I would remind them that they and their partner may cope in different ways. And some people like to talk about all their hopes and worries and other people just want to put one foot in front of the other. And the times that I found caregivers and patients having the most conflict is when their ways of coping and how they deal with it vary and they want the other person to be like them. Bob, it's almost like when we as clinicians want the patients to be like us, we see the same thing within families and partnerships. We always want everyone to do it the way we want to do it. And it, you know, the only time that that works is when I'm talking to my dog. It doesn't work with my partner. It doesn't work with my kids. It works sometimes with my dog. Well, Dr. Arnold, Dr. Rosenberg, Dr. Shanker, thanks for your time. Uh, thanks. Well, you made me tear up a couple times a day. I'll forgive you for that. But I, I say I'm really grateful to you, not just for this piece, but you guys could have done anything uh, with your careers and you chose to do this. So thanks for being clinician scientists. Thanks for helping out uh, patients and their families. And thanks for all that you do. I appreciate you. Well, likewise, Joe, it's our privilege. Thanks.